This morning, as I preach, it's a little bit different venue than what I'm normally used to. About uh, I don't know, six, seven months ago, back in October, I was given the opportunity to lead a group from our church there in Virginia to start a nursing home ministry to uh, an assistant living facility in the area. And it's been a very good opportunity. It's been really neat to be able to minister to people there and present the gospel there. But that's really the only formal preaching experience that I've really had up until this time. And usually about two-thirds of the way through it, I'd say at least a third of the audience looks about like this <laughs> when, when all is said and done. So I hope that won't be the case today. And I know Pastor Lee normally likes to preach with PowerPoint, but I've never actually tried that myself. So I figured since I haven't tried it yet, I better not try to deal with that this morning. So if you turn with me uh, to Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be focusing on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 today. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's interesting, the book of Ephesians is divided through many different sections, but there are two main sections where Paul divides this book, and many of his epistles are divided the same way. The first half is doctrine, teaching, a solid foundation upon which to build the rest of the part of the epistle that he writes, which is the practical side of things. And Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is the doctrinal foundation upon which he builds the rest of the book, the practical, the this is how you live section. And as I shared before while I was up there earlier, I'm a flight instructor up at Liberty University. And as a pilot, there's a very important document that we have, that we use as pilots. It's called the Pilot Operation Handbook, or the POH. And the Pilot Operating Handbook tells us many things about how to fly the airplane and how it works. The first section is the general section, the bare minimum about what you need to know about the plane. Second section is all about the limitations, airspeed limitations, flap limitations, when you can do this, when you can't do this. If you do this, you'll break the plane, so on and so forth. Third section is all about emergencies, what to do in all these different emergency procedures. Fourth section is normal operations, how to take off, how to land, how to start the plane, how to do an engine run-up to test it, how to land the plane, how to cruise, how to all these different things, normal operations. Section five is all about performance. Section six is all about weight and balance. Section seven is all about the operation of the different systems, the fuel system, the engine, the avionics system, the landing gear system, the brake system, you get the idea. So we have all these different sections, some of which can be very technical. We look into the fuel system, how does that work? Well, we have two tanks, one in each wing, the fuel is gravity fed from the tanks down to the fuel selector valve, where we have a fuel shutoff valve to stop the fuel from the fuel tanks to the rest of the system in the event of an emergency. At past the fuel shutoff valve, we have the fuel strainer, which strains the fuel and goes on through the engine-driven fuel pump, which drags it around through another system, which then takes it to the electrically-driven fuel pump, which we only use, again, in case of emergencies or starting the engine. Then past the engine-driven fuel pump and the electrical-driven fuel pump, the fuel then goes to the fuel control unit, where it meters 
It detects the amount of air that's going through the induction system into the engine and meters the appropriate amount of fuel. Now, along with that, we also have the mixture control, where the pilot can manually adjust the air-fuel mixture ratio. And then the fuel goes right in from the fuel control unit to the fuel distributor, directly to the injection port of each cylinders, and then into the engine for operation. Now, I know most of you, except hopefully Ryan Pierce back there, should understand something about that. But most of the rest of you have no idea what I just said. Sounds very complicated, very technical, and it's like, why on earth would you want to sit down and study that? Well, how about this? That might be the doctrine section of the POH, how it operates, or the limitations, all the different air speeds. That might seem a little taxing and tedious, and it does to my students, I could tell you. They, they don't like that, sitting down and studying all these speeds and all these systems and how it works. But I tell you one thing, if they don't know how the system works, they're not going to know how to land the plane. They're not going to know how to shut the fuel off to the engine if it catches on fire. If they don't understand the operation of the system, they're going to break something when they go to fly because they don't know how it works together. So studying the way the systems work and the limitations can seem very taxing and very tedious sometimes, but you know what? They don't understand that. They will have no idea how to effectively operate the airplane. Well, here in the book of Ephesians, like I said, we have two divisions. The first one is doctrine, chapters 1 through 3. The second one is practice, chapters 4 through 6. And everyone, there's, there's a spirit going on throughout a lot of people today that I don't want to know doctrine. I don't want to understand the deep theological truths of Scripture that I, my mind can't take. That Just give me something I could use. Just give me something I could, I could put into place. Or I don't want to know doctrine. I just want to love Jesus. But I tell you, if you don't know the doctrines of who Jesus is, you can't love him the way we're supposed to love him. And if you don't know the doctrines of Scripture, why we do what we do, then you can't effectively put it into practice in your life. And the theme today that we're going through is going to be focusing more in the practical section. But before that, we have to understand the doctrine. Now, I know most of you probably haven't read through Ephesians recently, so I'll do a very brief recap. In, verse, in chapters 1 through 3, it starts out like this. Paul opens up the letter explaining to the church at Ephesus how, guess what, we have been blessed in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. What are some of these spiritual blessings that we've been blessed with? Well, he goes on to tell us that we have been called and predestined by God. We have been predestined for adoption. We have been forgiven of our sins. We have peace with God. We have been justified, declared righteous before God. And you know, we have an inheritance of eternal life. And we have a Holy Spirit that is our seal, our guarantor of that inheritance, our down payment. The one who also keeps it safe and is our guarantor of that inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He goes on throughout the rest of chapter 1 and then into chapter 2. It explains that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We once walked according to the course of this world. We once were blinded by the God of this world. We were children of disobedience, children of the devil, and children by our very nature of wrath, which is still in store for some. But God, who is rich in his mercy, he saved us, not by anything that we have done, but by his mercy he saved us, by his grace. We're saved by grace through faith, Paul goes on to explain later in chapter 2. Not of works, and it's not of ourselves. There's no reason for us to boast, because it's all of God. And why did he save us? Well, he goes on to explain in chapter 2 that it's because he is showing in this age and in the age to come through us, the church, the manifold wisdom of God. 
We are trophies of his grace. Paul then goes on in the rest of chapter 2 and then all throughout chapter 3 to explain that we Gentiles were once strangers of the promises of God. We were once alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in us. He goes on to explain that in this world we had no hope. We had no God. But God who is rich in mercy came down, sent his son Jesus Christ, tore down the middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles and between God and man. And through Christ, God is making what was two entities, Jews and Gentiles, both now have equal access to God and both now are a part of this glorious institution called the church. And he goes on in chapter 3 to explain the church in times past was a mystery. But now God is revealing to us through Paul and to the world through us the mystery of the church that, like I said before, two totally separate entities now have equal access to God through Christ. And that's the doctrinal foundation upon which the rest of Ephesians is written. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you. Well, whenever you see a therefore, you know it's tied to something else. I heard someone say once, if you ever see a therefore, you always have to ask what it's there for. So he says, therefore, because based upon all of this in chapter 1, 2, and 3, all the doctrine that some people say is boring, the doctrine that we need in order to know how to live our life, if we understand the doctrine, therefore... I urge you, as a prisoner of the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy to which you have been called. It's kind of like this. He says, to walk in a manner worthy. As I said before, I'm a flight instructor at Liberty University. I'm a teacher at a major, the world's largest Christian university, as it is. And when you go to a university, or when you take your high school seniors to a university, what are you expecting? out of the professors and the instructors, you expect professionalism. You expect somebody who presents himself well. You expect somebody who you want to entrust, in my case, the lives of your young people too, as you go into an airplane and take off and hope that guy can get him back down before he learns how to. So suppose you had a young man or a young woman that you're ready to take them off to college and they want to be a pilot. You hear about Liberty's great aviation program, so you take a visit to Lynchburg, Virginia. And lo and behold, what flight instructor is there to greet you and give you a tour? Me. But it's not quite what you expected. You see me, I haven't shaven in three days. My hair is every which way. My pants come down to right about here. My shirt is untucked. I have, you know, some, some holes in my pants. You know, my, my shoes, who knows how long it's been since I've had new shoes. Look like I had them for 10 years. And I come up and say, yeah, 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 man, come right down this way. Let me, come here, slap the father on the back. Yeah, let me show you around. Let me show you Liberty University. Yeah, these are all our airplanes. Yeah, these are our classrooms. Yeah, this is, yeah, you got any questions for me, man? Yeah, tell, talk to me, dog. What's going on? If you brought your young man or young woman to Liberty University to check out the aviation program and you saw that, would that impress you? Would you want to entrust the life of your son or daughter to that flight instructor, to me, if I'm dressed and acting that way? No, because I'm not walking in a manner worthy of a flight instructor, of a professional individual teaching at a collegiate level at a major Christian university. You expect more than that. 
you expect better than that. And just like that, just like I am to walk worthy of a flight instructor, because I represent Liberty University, I represent General Young, Ernie Rogers, and all the men that are in charge of me, I represent all of these, I'm to walk worthy of that position. So we represent Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are citizens, not of this earth, but of heaven. We are here as ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, we are to walk worthy of the calling whereby we have been called. He goes on to say, in Ephesians 4, 2 through 6, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called, in one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. So he's going on to explain a little bit about how we walk worthy, and why we walk worthy of the calling by which we have been called. He says we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In the bond of peace. And the theme of unity is something that we see all throughout Ephesians. And right here, specifically unity within the church. And right before I dive into the message today, I just want to explain a little bit about what this unity is not. There's a lot of people out there teaching that we need to drop our doctrinal differences with other faiths. And start working with other faiths. People that do not even acknowledge the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven. And we need to have unity because we're all one. I submit to you that is not what Paul is talking about here. There's also other people within Christianity that say we need to drop all doctrinal divisions between all the different denominations and we need to all work together because we all claim the name of Christ. But I submit to you, not everybody who claims the name of Christ is following sound teaching. Not everybody who claims the name of Christ is teaching everything that is in line with Scripture. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So not everybody who says they're of the faith are of the faith. That's not the type of unity that Paul teaches here. Jude says in Jude 1 verse 3, he says, Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you, about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered for the saints. And I'd just like to take a, a brief moment here to say, Pastor Lee, I'm so thankful for your example in this. You know, I can think of several times through the years where even while I was away at school, I like to download the messages and listen to you. I need to get my, my weekly Pastor Lee fix sometimes. But I, I was listening to a message and it was really interesting. Apparently what happened was you know, there was a, a group came in from a, a, another, I think from somewhere in the U.S. And they came in to sing and, and one of the, the young men there was preaching a message. And in that message there was a lot of things that were in doctrinal error. And I was very glad to see Pastor Lee protecting the flock and earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered. To the saints. So that's not the unity that we're talking about. Drop all doctrinal distinctives and all work together for Christ regardless of what we believe. The unity he's talking about right here is the relationships between the body. 
So I'm just going to give you three virtues for maintaining unity within the body. And now, these are virtues specifically here dealing with inside the local church, but these are virtues that can be applied to anyone, any relationship. Your marriage, your family, your other relationships, if these virtues are going on in your life, you're going to be a lot more likely to maintain unity in these relationships. So the first one, and the one I want to spend the most time on, and I believe is probably the most important one, is that of humility. Now, when you think of humility, what do we think is the opposite of humility? Pride. Pride is the opposite of humility. So, what does the Bible have to say about pride and humility? Well, I'll just give a few verses here when I get in, before I get into it. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, and pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So God hates pride. We see that very clearly here. Proverbs 12, correction, Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble, there is wisdom. So when there's pride in your life, disgrace is what will follow. However, when there's humility, you'll be growing in wisdom. Proverbs 15, 33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Again, before we want to be honored, if we, want to, if we expect to have honor, there has to be humility being cultivated in our lives. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. But before humility comes honor. And there's so many other verses I have listed here, I won't take the time to read them all. But in the New Testament, we see several places where God says he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Likewise, ye who are younger, be subject to the elders and clothe yourselves in all humility. Well, what does that look like? I was going through this uh, aspect of humility at the nursing home a few weeks ago. And I brought with me a little, uh, well, a big, bright blue bathrobe. There was a little bench down here by the area where I was preaching. And I stuck it down there before we got started. And when I came to this verse, be clothed with humility, I pulled out this bathrobe and put it on. And all you could see was from about here up and about here down. All the rest was bright blue. So all you saw when you saw me was a bright blue bathrobe. You didn't hardly see Chris. It was this bright blue bathrobe. You could see me a mile away in that thing. It's kind of like that. Peter says, be clothed with humility. It needs to be so that when people look at Brother Anton, they don't say, oh, that's Anton Wallace. They say, wow, that's a man of humility. When they see Priscilla Carre, they don't see, that's just Priscilla Carre. They say, no, there's, that's a woman of humility. We need to be so clothed in humility. That's all people can see. When they see us. So what exactly is humility? I believe the definition is given right here in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. We'll come right back to Ephesians in a minute. He says, do nothing through rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look only on his own things or on his own interests, but also look on or take care of the interests of others. So right here, I think this, Paul gives a great definition of humility to the church at Philippi. He says, do nothing through rivalry or, con or conceit, 
But in humility, listen to this, count others as more significant than yourselves. Now be honest, how often do we do that? How often are we looking out for the interests of others at all? Much less about our own, about, above our own interests. Sometimes we might be looking out for the interests of others, but we're still looking out for number one. If we're really honest with ourselves. But Paul says, consider others more significant than yourselves. Do not look only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. So we need to be submitting our own wants and needs to the wants and needs of others. We need to be looking towards each other as more important than ourselves. And that is what the essence of humility is. Paul gives a couple examples here later on in Philippians 2. In verse 19 through 24, he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by good news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven work. How he, as a son with a father, has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you just as soon as I can to see to you how, how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I surely myself will be able to come too. So Paul's saying, I can't come to you. I'm in prison. I wish I could come to you. But instead, I have to send somebody. I have to send somebody that I can trust. And the only person I've found who I can trust is Timothy. And what does he say about Timothy? He says, I don't know anybody else who's going to look to your own needs. But they're, they're all seeking their own. However, Timothy puts others' needs above his own. Timothy is an example of humility. Well, he takes it a step further. Paul goes on and explains about another man. And this one's going to be hard to say, so I hope I get his name right. But in Philippians 2, verses 25 through 30, Paul says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. So he came from Philippi. They came to, he came to Paul to minister to Paul. Now Paul's sending him back. Paul goes on to say, For he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, Epaphroditus was ill. He was sick almost to the point of death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul didn't want to see him die. I am more eager now to send him to you, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, so that I may be less anxious. So receive him with the Lord, with all, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such a man, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his own life to complete what was lacking in your service towards me. So the whole church of Philippi couldn't come over and visit Paul in jail, but they could send a man. And they found a man. They found Epaphroditus. And they sent Epaphroditus to Paul. And Paul, I mean, Epaphroditus worked so hard ministering to the needs of Paul that he got sick. He got so sick, Epaphroditus almost died. But in his sickness, you know who Epaphroditus was worried about? He wasn't worried about himself. I mean, here he is on the brink of death. And he's worried because he heard that his home church in Philippi heard that he was sick and they were worried about him. So Epaphroditus is worried for them because they're worried about him. He's like, oh, I don't want them to be worried about me. I want them to have peace of mind. So here he is, almost on his deathbed, and he's more concerned about their concern and their needs than his own. So Epaphroditus is a great example 
that Paul gives us. But the best example, the ultimate example we have of humility is going to be that of who? Jesus Christ. Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6 says, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high and who looks far down on the heavens and earth? Another translation says, God actually has to humble himself to look at his creation. So in order to look down on his creation, God has to humble himself. Keep that in mind. God had to, he just, just to look on us, he has to humble himself. Because he is that high and lifted up. So if God has to humble himself just to look at his creation. Keep that in mind as we read on in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. I already read 3 and 4. I'll continue on starting from verse 3. Do nothing through rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here we go. Think about what Christ did. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself of no reputation, or of nothing, taking upon him the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, his creation that he has to humble himself just to look upon. He was born in the likeness of men. And he became obedient to the, the point of death, even the death of the cross. So here's Jesus Christ, God himself, the very God who has to humble himself just to look at us, took upon himself the form of a servant, humbled himself even more. The creator became the created, laid aside his glory, laid aside all the outward showings of the fact that he was God. And while he was still God and every bit of him was still God, he came down and became man, a part of his creation. And why did he do that? To do something that we could not do. Because we could not live a sinless life as Christ did. And we could not sit before God and stand before God as righteous. But through Christ, through his death, we could not bear the wrath of God and come through the other side. But Christ could. And that's what Christ did. He humbled himself so that we could experience eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, just very quickly, I'm going to go through the other two. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, he says, With all humility is the first virtue, and gentleness. Now, gentleness here in several other translations is also translated meekness. So we have an idea of gentleness or meekness. And many times when we think of the word meekness, we think of weakness. But I assure you, that's not the case. Meekness is somebody who has great power. They're not weak, but they know how to control it. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. Proverbs 14, 29 goes on to say, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. So someone who is loud and angry and always blowing up, look like they have great strength. It's not experience. That's not meekness. In fact, Proverbs says they're a fool. But someone who can rule his spirit, someone who control his spirit, that's a man of great weak, uh, that is a man of great meekness and a man of great wisdom. 
just give a little example of what meekness looks like. We look at Christ. Twice in his ministry, he came into the temple. And what did he find when he came into the temple? What did he find? Christ came into the temple and he found the money changers. He found them exploiting the people and using God's house as a den of thieves. And did Christ just sit back and do nothing? No. He went out there and he overthrew the tables. One text says that he made a whip and drove the money changers out. Christ had great power, even on the human side of things. And we see that demonstrated in the proper venue. But you know what else Christ had? He knew how to control that spirit. In Matthew 26, verses 56 through 68, Christ is on trial now. Several weeks later, he says, Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though there were many false witnesses that came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man says that he, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. At this, the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that this man, what these men testify against you? But did Jesus act in rage? No, he remained silent. Says Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus said to him, it is as you, it is as you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated in the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. So they spit on him in the face and struck him and slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that hits you? So here is Jesus Christ, falsely accused, getting spit on, struck, dragged about, later nailed to a cross. Yet again, he's the ultimate example of meekness because while we see in the proper context, yes, he did flip over the money changers tables and yes, he did drive them out of the temple. But you know what? Jesus also knew how to rule his spirit well. So much so to the point that he became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Now finally, Paul also adds on, he says, With all humility and gentleness, or meekness, also with patience, showing yourself tolerance for one another in love. So patience, forbearing with one another. Well, how does this play out in our day-to-day lives? We all get on each other's nerves. We all do things that bother each other. We all get irritated, but how do we deal with each other? We must deal with each other in light of who we are. We too are sinners saved by grace. We deserve nothing but hell. Yet God has so richly granted us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. So when we remember this, it helps us have patience with each other to forbear one another in love. 
And in closing, I just want to give you with an example that I think so perfectly illustrates humility, but also these other two virtues. When I first came to Timberlake, shortly after arriving, I wanted to seek somebody who could be a father figure to me. I wanted to seek somebody who could pour their life into me. As many of you know, my father passed away six years ago. And so I found one of the pastors at our church. He seemed to be a humble man, seemed to be a godly man. I could tell from his teaching that he had a strong understanding of the Word of God. And I went up to him and I asked him if he'd meet with me on a a weekly basis, hold me accountable, teach me some of the wisdom God has given him. And through that, we built a relationship. You know, I found out a few months ago that several years before I came to Timberlake Baptist Church, our former pastor was getting ready to retire, and they were looking for somebody to fulfill his shoes. Before the senior pastor retired, several had told my mentor, Pastor Brody, that more than likely he would be the one to step up into the senior pastor role. That promise was there. However, when the rubber met the when the rubber met the road, and it was time for our former pastor to retire, and they were looking for a new man to take his place as the senior pastor at Timberlake, there was a little bit of division that started in the body. Some really wanted Pastor Brody, as was promised, to take that position, and others said, "No, yeah, he's had 20 plus years of ministry experience, but..." He doesn't have a Bible college degree. We want someone with a Bible college degree. So there was some strife and contention starting to brew within Timberlake Baptist Church. And there were several that were going out and looking for other young men who had been to Bible college to come in and preach and to see if they'd be a good candidate for the senior pastor position. And, you know, there were many people that came to Pastor Brody and told him, you know, if you were to leave and start another church, we'll follow you. We'll leave Timberlake and we'll follow you wherever you go because we love you and we trust you and we want you to be our leader. And a lot of men would have and a lot of men have either started a church split that way or caused major contention in the body of Christ. But you know what Pastor Brody said? He said that the work of God is worth, it is far more than one man. The work of God is far more than one man. And so you know what he did? He acted upon his words and he took his name out of the hat, so to speak, of those that they were looking to possibly be a senior pastor. They didn't reject him. He willingly withdrew because he did not want to cause division in the church body. During that time, I'm sure there was many instances where he could have lashed out in anger because promises were not fulfilled. But you know what he showed? And he had meekness, power under control. And he was very patient with the congregation. And in humility, he considered the needs of the body there at Timberlake as more important than his own. And he withdrew his name and said, I'm willing to stay here as associate pastor, as executive pastor, and let somebody else come in and take the senior pastorate. And shortly after that, a man by the name of Brian Farrell has done that, and the Lord has used him in a great way at Timberlake. And the church is growing and thriving up there in Lynchburg. And the body wouldn't be what it is today had Pastor Brody not acted in humility. If he had acted in pride, church might not even be around. But he acted in humility. 
And God continues to work and is growing the church in so many ways spiritually. And our impact around the world is increasing incredibly. Because one man acted in humility, considering the needs of others as more important than his own. So three virtues to maintaining unity within the body, maintaining unity within the family, within other relationships. Humility, meekness, and patience, forbearing one another in love. In the words of a well-known preacher to you all, Selah, think and act on these things.